0: Good afternoon, I do hope you're well. I'm Ben Wardle and coming up today an introduction to Kantian Ethics for A-Level Religious Studies. This is from the OCR, A-Level Religious Studies, Religious Ethics paper. So we'll be taking a look at all things Immanuel Kant and his moral theory, which is, of course, grounded in that concept of duty. So let's take a look at the specification to start with, shall we? So we need to know all about um Four things really we need to know about duty the hypothetical imperative, the categorical imperative, and its three formulations, and then the free postulates, will also be discussing these ideas from Kantian ethics in a wider ethical context. Say, so for example, whether or not Kantian ethics provides a helpful method of moral decision-making, whether or not an ethical judgment about something being good, bad, right, or wrong could be based on the extent to which duty is best served. Kant would, of course, say, yes, absolutely, no questions asked and um, whether or not Kantian ethics is too abstract to be applicable to practical moral decision making that's a very common criticism of Kantian ethics it's too abstract um, to be applied in real life situations it's too demanding for example it's based too much on these ideas about duty and on the free postulates for example um, and it's very much a great theory um, and it works in theory you could argue, but when you try to apply it in the real world, in real life moral dilemmas, in real life situations, it just doesn't work. Um, And finally, whether or not Kantian ethics is so reliant on reason that it unduly rejects the importance of other factors, such as sympathy, empathy, and love in moral decision-making. Now, of course, with the OCR religious ethics paper, we do also need to look at applying Kantian ethics to business ethics and sexual ethics. So we'll be considering um, Um, Both of those areas of ethics as well and try to keep them in mind as we go through a really great, great, I can't even speak, I'm that excited to be studying, can a really great way of um, getting to grips with these key concepts is applying them to real life situations. So always be thinking, how would this apply? Can I think of a case study? Can I think of an example that would really illustrate how this works or doesn't work in practice? So a few thoughts as well in terms of our um, academic skill set, if you like, as we go through, I really want us to be thinking about our synoptic links. So can we link anything we're talking about to other areas of the course, other areas of the specification, not just religious ethics necessarily, but can we go further afield? Is there something in philosophy or theology that might be relevant um, to our discussions? Are we building a sustained analysis? And what, what I'm really interested in today is can we develop our analysis Throughout our AO1. So can we evaluate duty? Can we evaluate the hypothetical imperative and categorical imperative? Can we evaluate the free postulates? You know, quite often we will do all our AO1, won't we? And then we'll think, right, what about the AO2? But actually, could we start evaluating and analyzing throughout? Um, and so we're getting a really good understanding of the different areas of Kant's ethical theory and how they might. And be improved upon, maybe how we can really critique them. Style and structure, very important in your essay responses. So just try to keep that in mind as we go through as well. Um, and finally, sound bites. And I think Kant is the best person for sound bites. You'll see some of my all time favorite Kant quotes in just a minute, but he has got some brilliant, like golden. Sound bite. So make sure you have got your post-it notes ready and get your Kant quotes on the bedroom wall, because there really are some great, very, very memorable, very, very concise quotes from Kant that will look fantastic if you are writing an essay response on his ethics. So, who is Kant? Well, I'd love to tell you, but I am actually covering up the description. Can I shrink that box? Oh, I can. There we go. Look at the technology here, my loves. Honestly, no expense spared. So, let me introduce you to the man behind the ethical theory, first of all. So, it's Immanuel Kant, 1704 to 1804 are the key dates. He was a German philosopher. He was the founder of critical philosophy, no less. He never married, and he dedicated his life to studying and teaching. Now, on the one hand, that's some nice background by biographical information. On the other, it's actually quite telling about his ethical theory. You'll see in the blue box here, um, and I've quoted this from dailyphilosopher.net, Kant lived a very routine-oriented life. Um, And he, you know, he was very much committed to his studies, to his academia, to his philosophy. And that's very interesting when we're talking about the application of Kantian ethics to the real world. And that is a common criticism. It's too abstract. Kant seems to treat morality, in my opinion, as if it was a mathematical equation. You know, he's applying the rules of reason and logic, a priori knowledge, to ethics and that can be challenging because it's one thing to have an ethical theory you know in terms of you are developing the theory it works very well when you're writing it down and you're studying it in the lecture theatre or the classroom but what about when you apply it to the real world and so this is actually very important in terms of understanding Kant's ethics and it's um application to the real world. Kant lived in a little academic bubble, if you like. You know, he was so, so passionate about his routine. He had a very, very rigid routine and he did not travel Further than his hometown ever. You know, he lived this very, very, as I say, rigid, regimented life. And he wanted to apply that to his ethics. You know, he wanted ethics, he wanted morality to be very rigid, to be very strict, to be very structured. And that is why we will see his ideas about duty, his very inflexible theory, this whole idea of having these certain universal, universal, I can't even say the word now universalized rules there we go third time lucky these rules which can be universalized these um, categorical imperatives that are uncompromising and crystal clear so you know he lived a life that was orderly to the point of caricature that's according to the Oxford uh, Dictionary of Philosophy you know it was so orderly it was actually quite entertaining you know um he never lived, left as I say his hometown he never married he dedicated his life to His studies, as we read here. I love trivia about people's daily routines. He woke up at 5 a.m. every day to meditate, smoke, and drink tea for an hour. Then he'd spend an hour preparing lectures that he would deliver from home from 7 till 9. He would then write until 1 p.m., after which he'd eat and socialise for three hours. You've got to fit it into the three hour window, otherwise, you're not coming in. Then he would walk for an hour. He always went for his walk. um, And then he would read and write until he went to bed. A very routine driven life, a very structured existence. And as I say, he wanted to take the order that he had in terms of his daily routine and he wanted to apply that to his ethical theory. So a very ordered, very structured, very rigid way of living and also a very, you know, ordered structured way of philosophizing and looking at ethics and morality. And that is why if you look at our third bullet point here, his ethics are based Um, uncompromisingly on the search for a single supreme principle of morality, a principle with rational authority, rational a priori, it's all about thought and reflection rather than experience, leading to conclusions, um, that is binding upon all rational creatures. Can't very, you know, very hot on this idea that all human beings are rational creatures and you need to use reason. As they say, it's an a priori theory and that in itself could be a great evaluation AO2 point. It is based solely on reason and This idea that Kant believes that goodness shines forth like a precious jewel, that you should just know through reason, through thought alone, what is goodness. You know, goodness is this. In the same way a triangle has three angles, goodness is. X, Y, Z. It's very, very clear to everybody he believed who uses reason. So what are the key themes that we're going to see when we study Kant? We're going to see that idea about reason, so it is, as I say, a priori. We're going to see this notion of duty. We're going to see a lot about autonomy, and that's all about the idea of self-governance. That He he does believe that each individual has self-governance. Rights, Kant um, is very influential in terms of modern understandings of human rights, he believes people should be treated as ends not means, for example, so very keen to emphasize the idea of rights belonging to each individual, obligations, it's a very demanding theory that he develops, there are lots of imperatives, we're discussing the difference between a hypothetical and categorical imperative. Universality. This is very, very important for Kant. He speaks about a principle of action being made a law for the whole world that every single act that you do must be universalized. I can't say that word properly, but you'll get what I mean. <laughs> I'll get there by the end. Everything needs to be universalizable. Universalizable. I think I'm making up words now. Never mind, my loves. We shall soldier on. It's got to be um, applicable on a global scale. So, everything you do, you are not just acting. For you, you are acting on behalf of the whole world and perhaps most importantly, consistency. There are no exceptions in terms of Kant's moral theory. And that's why it's so demanding. You can't just go, oh, well, in this situation or, oh, gosh, I feel so sorry for them. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to push my principles aside and help them. It is a very consistent, rigid, fixed theory, all based on having certain duties you must adhere to at all times. Two key texts from Kant, the critique of pure reason and the uh, metaphysics of morals. And then here we are, we've got some amazing soundbites that will really give you a great insight into Kant. Listen, I wholeheartedly recommend you get a few of these on your bedroom wall, and you know them like the back of your hand for the exam, because they are fantastic for just dropping in there, you know, where it's obviously relevant. I think the best quote is this two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and reverence the starry sky above me and the moral law within me so Kant was primarily interested in the starry sky above me and the moral law within me the idea that there is this knowable moral law that it is fixed and it is absolute he says, um, suppose a man does an action for the sake of duty alone. For the first time, his action has genuine moral worth. So an action only has moral worth if it is done for the sake of duty alone. It is duty alone, that is it, that gives an action moral worth. A moral worth beyond all comparison, the highest. He does good not from inclination, but from duty. So goodness must come from duty. It's not from inclination. See so you're like, oh, I feel sorry for him. I'm going to help him. Whenever you do good, you have to be doing so from a place of duty. Why? Well, the next quote reveals. Can't believe that man must be disciplined, for by nature he is raw and wild. You know, he really contrasted there that notion of um, being animalistic with the idea of being a rational, autonomous, moral character. And so he believes we need discipline. And he's certainly very disciplined in the way he lives his life, as you can see from his daily routine there. So he believes people need discipline. And that's why his moral theory is very, very rigid, um, very structured and very strict. You need to be disciplined. There needs to be consistency. There can be no exceptions. There can be no excuses. Good, he says, shines forth like a precious jewel. It can therefore be known a priori. And he believes that it is a, you know, a universal concept linking to metaethics there in terms of what is the good. You know, Kant being very clear, it is an objective, knowable, absolute quality. Maybe you could say a little bit like Plato and the idea of the form of the good, He says that life without reason and morality has no value, really getting to the core there of what Kant believes in terms of the importance of reason, the supremacy of reason and morality as well. You know, the idea of discipline, of morality, of goodness going to the very core of what he believes human life is all about do the right thing because it is right is a great very simple quote from Kant there again reflecting the fact none of your inclinations matter it's not about doing the right thing because you feel sorry for someone or because you you know you want to be kind or compassionate because it is right is the only Reason. It is your duty. In the same way, the only good thing is the goodwill. And we'll be talking about the goodwill quite a lot. Very important to Kant. He says, every man is to be respected as an absolute end to himself. A very important quote here. Kant contrast using people as means to an end. So using them for your own gain, using somebody, basically. He says, you know, you have to respect every individual. They can only be ends, not means. Um, an example from sexual ethics would be using someone to fulfill your desire for sex, for example. You can't do that because you would be using somebody. You must respect them as an end in themselves. That idea of the uh, universality of the uh, categorical imperative is shown in this quote. Live your life as though your every act were to become a universal law. Every single thing you do must be be appropriate as a universal law he uses the example of a kingdom of ends um, would they legislate for your action in a kingdom of ends um is it an act that if every single person on the planet did it the world would be a good place um or are you behaving in a way that if anybody else did the same our entire world system would collapse. So for example, things like, you know, stealing. If someone was saying, oh, but you know, if I don't steal, Or if she doesn't steal, she won't be able to eat. You know, it's an exception, it's an act of desperation. Kant would say, well, if you then said it's okay for everybody to steal, what would the consequences of that be? You know, every single action, you know, every single thing you do, every act were to become a universal law. You're not just acting for yourself in those circumstances, you're acting for everybody in every circumstance. And that really does reflect the demanding universal nature of this moral theory. Um, What else do we have here for you then? Every man must be disciplined. We've already had that quote. Listen, I'm that excited about this quote. I've got it in the list twice. (laughs) Every man must be disciplined for by nature. He is roaring wild. Um, Every human individual is an end. Always remember that human individuals are ends, that very, very important quote there. Um, All imperatives command either hypothetically or categorically. We're going to be discussing this in detail, that distinction between the hypothetical and categorical imperatives. And then your principle of action, as we know, be made a law for the whole world. So let's get into the theory now, shall we? And we are starting things off by taking a look at duty, deontology and the good will. So let me just give you a couple of the key definitions. Now, I do apologize. They are a bit further down. So what I'm going to do is attempt to actually draw on this screen. And I'm very concerned how this is going to go because, well, it's just not going to go well. But you know what? We're going to give it a go. So we're going to start with deontic here. Look at that. Oh, that went okay. So I've highlighted it in yellow. Deontic. And this means in ethics, the deontic categories are those of obligation. Let me try and highlight that or duty and permission. So basically what we're talking about when we're talking about deontology is obligations, duties and permissions. And so, oh my life, look at that highlighting. It's a disaster, my loves, it really is. Deontological ethics, therefore, are ethics based on the notion of a duty. What is right, rights themselves. um, And that's in contrast to something like utilitarianism, where it's about, The consequences, for example, as opposed to the idea of achieving some good state of affairs or the qualities of character necessary to live well. And that is, of course, virtue ethics. Um, So deontological ethics are all about ethics based on the idea of duties. So we'll be asking, where do these duties come from? You know, how do we apply them? What is their significance? What is a duty is my next question. And I'm going to attempt to highlight the word again. Oh, OK, that was a little bit better. Duty, that which one must do. And I think the word must there, that modal verb, anyone doing a synoptic link to their A-level English language <laughs> may appreciate that degree of certainty. That which one must do or that which can be required of one. I think that's another modal verb, isn't it? Implications of that which is owed to other people or perhaps oneself. For Kant, a perfect duty is one that must be performed, whatever the circumstances. And that is so important. It is irrespective of the circumstances. Every single person needs to be aware of that. You know, it doesn't matter what's going on. There are no exceptions. When you have a perfect duty, you must perform it. It is not up for negotiation. Um, and the only good thing is the goodwill within this. So Kant's very interested in the motivation behind your actions and your motivation is to do good. That is it. So that links in nicely here to the goodwill. The goodwill to perform the right action for the right reason. And this sort of goes to the core of Kantian ethics. So let me just take you back to the top here to goodwill. Goodwill is the only truly intrinsically good thing. It's having good motives and good intentions. With a goodwill, we perform the right action for the right reason. Kant is therefore very interested in how your motive and your outward action Um, correspond. So for example, a a synoptic link to business ethics is the idea that good ethics is good business. So that a business would be ethical because it would be good for them, it would benefit them financially. So you might have more sales, you might have a better public um, perception, for example, if you are an ethical business. And Kant says, you should not be ethical as a business uh, because it will benefit you. You should be good because that is the right thing to do. You know, the only reason for a business to do good is because it's the right thing to do. And so if you have got an ulterior motive, that is wrong, because the only good thing is the goodwill. So irrespective of whether, you know, the business becomes this amazing business who pays its staff really well and gives so much to charity, you know, is really honest and fair. You know, Kant says, well, if they're only doing that because it's good for them, you know, it makes them look good and it therefore boosts their profits, It's not a good thing. That is not goodness because he's very interested in the motive behind it. And the only good thing is the goodwill. The only truly intrinsically good thing is having good motives and intentions. Now, with this, with this whole idea of the goodwill and this commitment to duty, emotions and consequences, oh, my life. That just looks like a five year old child has gone crazy on a PowerPoint, doesn't it? Never mind, never mind. We're not going to get emotional. We're going to talk about emotion instead because emotions and possible consequences are irrelevant to Kant. He's not interested. He's interested in whether you have got a good will um, and you are doing your duty. It's all about duty, what we must do do Um, and so it is a deontological theory it is very much committed to this notion that all humans have moral duties and they should be self-evident and you know the only reason to do good is because it is the right thing to do you cannot have an ulterior motive it's not about emotions it's not about consequences it's about your obligations your moral duties and so What does this actually look like in practice? The shopkeeper who charges his customer fairly because it's good business. Kant would say, no, that's not goodness. That's not morality because you're doing it for an ulterior motive. You should do the right thing because it is right, not because it will um, benefit you or aid you in any way. My decision to donate to charity today because I feel like it, but not tomorrow because I don't. That decision to donate to charity today, we might say, oh, that's a really good thing. Kant would say, no, it's not because it's based on inclination. It's based on emotion. You know, it is meant to be a duty. You're meant to do the right thing because it is right, um, not because you feel like it. And so he would not be happy about that. And then a very, very interesting application of this idea of duty is to the very famous Axman example, which I have no doubt you have come across at some point. And it's the idea that um, there is a man with an axe at the door demanding to know where your friend is. And your friend is in the house. Now, if you, you know, you lie to them and you said, oh, I don't know. Um, Or you said, oh, that, you know, they're at the co-op. So then they run off to the co-op. Your friend would be safe, wouldn't they? But Kant says it is your duty to always tell the truth. And that's it. It's non-negotiable. There's no exceptions and the possible consequences are irrelevant. And so it would be your duty if the axeman asked you, where are they? You would have to go, oh, they're inside. (laughs) that's your duty can is you know not interested in the consequences he's interested in whether you are doing your duty and your duty is to tell the truth that is a self-evident thing if you like um because lying if we all lied if you you know you took that universality principle and we all lied then you know we would not live in a good world it would not be something you could legislate for in the kingdom of ends and so you know do not lie and when we say do not lie we don't mean unless or except. it is an absolute duty do not lie and the, the consequences are irrelevant. And so in the Axman example, you would have to say, well, they're inside, my love. <laughs> Do you want me to put the kettle on? You know, it's a very, very demanding theory. Um, and we, we need to talk about that idea of duty then in that context, that notion of duty, that you have certain obligations that should be a priori evident. Um, is it a useful concept? Is it a helpful concept? You know, I've got a few questions to ask you in terms of assessing duty here. So is it useful to say human beings have certain duties? You know, does that actually help us in terms of our moral decision making to say all human beings have certain duties? My next question is, where do they come from? You know, okay, so we have duties, but what are they and how do you know what a duty is? what about if you have conflicting duties you know if there's more than one duty then there is a you know there is a possibility that duties could come into conflict and we'll talk about this with business ethics when um you know we're applying kant and we're saying right so a whistleblower for example might have a duty to um expose a scandal that's going on but what if they also have a duty to their company you know So if they've got a duty to speak out, but they've also got a duty to protect the company, which of those duties um, do they act upon? You know, what do we do if there is a conflicting set of duties? We could say that having duties gives clarity and consistency. You know, it, it makes it very clear to everybody what you've got to do. There is no room for ambiguity and doubt. You know, we're saying very clearly this is it you know these are the rules and considering the fact that your emotions inclinations and desires are subject to change you know duty demands that we put aside our feelings in order to do the right thing you know it is very very clear it's very um absolute it's unchanging unlike our emotions and unlike the circumstances so you could say it makes morality very easy you know it doesn't mean it, it means that you don't, excuse me, have to think about it and worry about it. You know, you just do it. It's so clear. Um, however, is it that clear? Is it too vague? You know, is there actually enough clarity behind it? Is there a, you know, a possibility that what I think is a self-evident duty, you don't think is a self-evident duty? You know, we, we are... Working on the assumption everybody will a priori come to the same conclusions, but what if they don't? You know, is there enough clarity about what our duties are and why we always need to follow them? Um, It demands that we put our feelings aside and do the right thing. You could say, so it's unemotional. You could say that's a good thing because, you know, our emotions and our desires, our inclinations are subject to change. Um, And so that does create ambiguity. So it's very, you know, it's very consistent. It's very clear. But you could also say that is not helpful when making moral decisions because human beings are emotional. And so it makes sense for our emotions to play a part in our moral decision making processes. It ensures you could say that we always do what is right. Um, And as we know, Kant says man must be disciplined for by nature, he is raw and wild. And so, you know, following on from that, we could say, well, it's a very helpful thing, because it means that we always do what is right. We can't be trusted. Otherwise, we need discipline. That ensures we continue living very moral lives, which is important for the good of society. It is a concept that can be abused. One way is when it becomes conflated with the idea of obedience to authority. You know, when you hear the word duty, you can really associate that with obedience to authority. The Nazis, for example, who were put on trial at Nuremberg, argued that they were doing their duty Um, However, in response to this, a Kantian ethicist might point out the problem is in a misunderstanding of duty rather than in the theory of duty itself. Um, Because, as we're going to discover, no one who understands Kantian ethics and its respect for persons would uh, endorse the atrocities of the Nazi regime. Um, But if somebody is saying, I was just doing my duty could that complicate our justice system? You know, how do we know what makes a duty right? Um, And we will actually unpack that when we talk about the hypothetical and categorical imperatives. Um, And it is linked, this idea of duty is linked to God in the free postulates. We're talking about the postulates and basically they are the things that are required hypothetically for morality to work. Um, And so, when it comes to duty, you could say, okay, well, it might work for a theist, for example. If someone believes there is a God, they might believe that they have duties, you know, they have these divinely ordained duties. But if somebody is, for example, an existentialist in their morality, then would they believe there are any a priori inherent innate um, duties? Would they believe that goodness takes on this form and this nature? Or would they just believe it is a case of, making it up as you go along, if you like, you know, there is nothing fixed, there is nothing rigid in morality, in for example, that idea from AJR, that all moral statements are matters of emotion, and they're essentially personal preferences and opinions. Um, and the nature of morality is really called into question by this idea of duty. So lots to think about there. Talking of things to think about, we've got our two imperatives. So this is really at the core of Kantian ethics now, the hypothetical and categorical imperatives. So these are um, how we determine our moral duties. So I've just said, you know, how do I know what a duty is? What if we disagree on our duties? Here is Kant's response. This is how we determine our duties. This is how we know what are our moral duties. And it is all about our imperatives. So Kant says this, all imperatives um, command either hypothetically or categorically. So if the action would be good simply as a means to something else, really important phrase in Kantian ethics, really poor highlighting from me. If the action would be good simply as a means to something else, then the imperative would be, hypothetical okay a hypothetical is that oh i'm not even going to keep highlighting i'm not even going to keep highlighting i want to highlight one more word if with a hypothetical it's all about if okay it's like a hypothesis a hypothesis is conditional isn't it it's about saying you know if i do this then this will happen you know i propose that if this variable what are the variables let's do a link to science If my independent variable is this, then this will happen to my dependent variable. So when we're talking about hypothetical situations, you know, we are working with conditionals. So I've lost my place now. Then the imperative would be hypothetical. But if the action is represented as good in itself, in accordance with reason, then the imperative is categorical. So good in itself here you know, it's not dependent. It's not about, well, in these conditions or under these circumstances, it would be good. It's about saying it's good in itself, irrespective of the circumstances, irrespective of any other factor. It is unconditionally good. It is good in itself in accordance with reason. Then the imperative is categorical. So just to give you those two definitions, you know, we've got all these imperatives. So all of our sort of our moral statements, if you like, are imperatives. We have our hypotheticals, which are moral obligations that are dependent upon the desiring goal in question. I am going to try and highlight again, but it's just not going to end well. I can feel it. Dependent. So they are dependent. Hypotheticals are dependent on the goal in question. They are for the sake of an end result. And as we know, Kant is not interested in that at all. He doesn't like emotions. He doesn't like consequences for the sake of an end result. So our command or our maxim for action only applies in certain cases. So it's all about specifics and it is dependent on the outcome. So that is not a moral duty because it is about a specific situation, certain cases, and it is dependent on the outcome. That is not a moral duty for Kant. You then have our categorical imperatives, which are unconditional moral obligations that we are able to work out using reason alone. So we should know them a priori. Um, and, And therefore they are unconditional commands they are therefore regardless of context, um, and they are a compulsion, they are a requirement, they are consistent, they are non-negotiable. When it's a categorical imperative, it's like when someone says, this is categorically not true, they are saying it is 110% not true. There is no doubt, there is no ambiguity, you know, there is no debate about it, this is it. It is factual. And as I say, that's what Kant wants to do. You know, he wants to take this mathematical approach to morality in the same way that two or two is four. He's saying, do not lie is a universal, eternal truth. It's non-negotiable. So hypothetical is conditional. It's not a moral duty. Categorical, it's concrete. Um, it's, it's compulsive. It's consistent. It's non-negotiable. So How do we determine which is which? So obviously it goes without saying Kant loves the categorical imperative. You know, this is going to be our focus for Kantian ethics, living your life by categorical imperatives. But how do we work out whether a maxim is a hypothetical or categorical imperative? Well, as if by magic, here we are there are in terms of calculating or determining whether something is a hypothetical or categorical free formulations so basically you apply these free formulations and if they work for these so if you can tick each of these off um You've got yourself a categorical imperative. So let's find out a couple more key quotes for you. Act only according to the maxim by which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. So everything you do, you know, it's got to become a universal law. It's got to have universality you've got to act in such a way that you always treat humanity never simply as a means but always at the same time as an end so important never ever use somebody as a means to an end never use somebody to fulfill another goal so for example slave labor you know or as I say using people for your, your sexual desires or whatever you know you, you have to treat people as an end in themselves so these three formulations that reveal to us our categorical imperatives we have the universal law the person of ends and the kingdom of ends the universal law the action we propose should be able to make a universal law if everybody acted in this way what would the consequences be so for example if you steal something from work one day what would happen if everybody did this It wouldn't be a very good world, would it? It wouldn't be a very good situation. So it's got to have universality. If every single person on the planet followed that action, you know, your principle of action be made a law for the whole world. What would be the consequences? So it has to be, it has to meet the criteria of being a universal law, that universality at its core. Person as ends, a, in recognition of the fact humans are rational and autonomous, they are ends in themselves as opposed to being a means to an end. You must not treat people, excuse me, I'm now choking on the Evian, as an object, as an accessory, as a resource, as a means to an end. <coughs> Do you excuse me, I'm now dying. Um that's so important. So when we are looking, is this a categorical imperative? Does it treat people as ends or does it treat people as means? Remember, if it treats people as a means to an end, it is not a categorical imperative and can is not impressed. Every single individual must be respected um, in recognition of the fact they are rational and autonomous. So human rights is at the core of Kantian ethics. And then kingdom of ends, which brings the two above together. So this is all about imagining we are part of the lawmaking council in a, in a perfect hypothetical, no pun intended here, kingdom of ends. So if we lived here where everybody treats others as ends, you know, and everybody follows the rules, would our proposed action be one that is permitted? So essentially, if you lived in a moral utopia where everybody is good and everything is perfect, would that imperative you are proposing be passed as legislation? Would it be allowed? Would people approve of that rule? Would people say, yes, absolutely, brilliant, let's go. So in a perfect world where everyone always follows the rules so they have universality, Would that become one of those universal rules um, in terms of it treats every person as an end? So our three formulations, you've got to pass this criteria for something to be a categorical imperative. Is it a universal law? Does it have universality? Does it treat persons as ends? And would it be passed as legislation in the kingdom of ends in our perfect moral utopia? Now, unsurprisingly, we end up with very, very few categorical imperatives because this is such tough criteria can admit there are very few examples, Uh, but he says, or sorry, he gives very few examples. Maybe he thought there were hundreds, but he just didn't want to give them to us all. Maybe, or maybe he couldn't come up with any. (laughs) And so his get out of jail card was, because we are rational, you should work it out for yourself. Um, So he does give four. So he does give four. He very kindly gives us four, gives us something to work on. Um, Wrong to make a lying promise. So it's wrong to make a lying promise. It's wrong to commit suicide. It's wrong to neglect one's talent because of course if you neglect your talent, if everybody then neglects their talent, nothing's going to get done in the world um, and it's wrong to refrain from helping others because if nobody helped anybody you know things wouldn't go very well in our world there'll be a lot more suffering and that wouldn't be a very good thing so there we have counts four examples it's wrong to make a lying promise it's wrong to commit suicide because obviously if everybody commits suicide wrong to neglect your talents and wrong to refrain from helping others others. So they are the free formulations. Um, and there they are again. Um, wonderful. I love that. I've put them twice, just in case you wanted reminding the <laughs> the universal law, the person of ends, and the kingdom of ends. There we go again. Now, we are going to move on to another three, another triple, if you like, and it is the three postulates. Um, And this is a postulate, it's a very nice word, isn't it, for describing things that have to be assumed or things that are the basis for morality. So in order for this moral theory to work, if you like, um, practically, Kant believes there needs to be free postulates. So they just have to be assumed. You just have to take it as a given, if you like. So it's not something to question. It's not something to work out. You just have to say, right, in order for this theory to work, we just have to assume that these three things are the basis for our morality. And for Kant, those three things are the free will, freedom of the will, immorality, so that you will live forever, eternity, and God, that God exists. That just has to be postulated. It just has to be assumed in order for morality to make sense. So, as I say, he does not think that these three things are proved. He's not trying to prove them. He's just saying they have to be assumed practically, in order for morality to exist and for his moral theory to function. And the three things are that you just have to assume in order for the theory to function are that we have free will. If we are not genuinely free, there can be no moral responsibility. Two, that there is an afterlife, that we are immortal because, um, and this just gives you a bit more context on Kant as well, he believes morality morality requires the summum bonum, which is the highest good to be achieved this is where perfect virtue is rewarded by perfect happiness because he's being very demanding, isn't he? It's all very demanding. And so he says, don't worry, you know, follow the rules, do all these things. You know, I realize how demanding it is and you will be rewarded. You know, there's got to be some kind of reward for your discipline, for your commitment to morality. And so whilst it is very demanding in this world, you will be rewarded for that in the next world. And so your perfect virtue in this world must be rewarded by perfect happiness. Now, that perfect happiness can't be achieved in this lifetime. So it must occur in the next. And so you need to have immortality, you need to have this idea of eternal life, so that at some point in the future after your death, you can achieve the summon bonum, that you can achieve the perfect happiness, which is a reward for your perfect virtue. So, there is therefore actually a motivation for your goodness um, and for doing your duty so while Kant says the only good thing is the goodwill he is also saying don't worry because we're going to postulate that you have got immortality which means that your perfect virtue can be rewarded with perfect happiness but that of course cannot be your motivation so you're not doing good for the sake of reward we're just assuming that you will be rewarded for doing good so instead of it being you know a goal it's an assumption so it's a foundation rather than a focus to work towards. Um, and then number three, that God exists, because how else are you going to end up being rewarded in order that the sum bonum actually occurs and goodness is rewarded by happiness, summon bonum, of course, the highest God Um there must be a God who ensures the justice of the universe, you know, and very interesting in this Kantian ethics theory, isn't it, this whole idea that, you know, you have to do the right thing because it is right, you know, and it's very strict, it's very just, and that's obviously wonderful, but we know that in the real world, you know, a lot of people do break the rules, they do bend the rules, and there isn't that much justice in this real world, so you might think, What's the point of me doing my duty? What's the point of me following the rules, you know, seven days a week, 12 months of the year when nobody else is doing so? And Kant says, well, the reason is, you know, or the foundation for my moral theory is that there is a God who will reward you. Um, who will ensure justice. And so even though there is not justice in this lifetime, don't give up on justice. Keep doing the right thing because it is right. I know there's all these rule breakers, but you will be rewarded um, after death because God will ensure that the summum bonum actually occurs and goodness is rewarded by happiness. But remember, that cannot be your motivation. So you're not doing good, so you will be rewarded. You are doing good because it's the right thing to do. It's just an assumption, a basis, a foundation for the theory. Again, Kant does not think these things are proved. They just have to be assumed practically in order for morality to exist. So again, the three postulates, things that have to be assumed as a basis for morality are free will we, we don't have responsibility for our actions if we're not free afterlife so that we can have that summon and bonum, and that perfect virtue can be rewarded by perfect happiness and then god another assumption a practical assumption as the basis for this moral theory of imperatives, duties and postulates now how does this look in practice? How might this look in practice? Let's try applying Kant to business ethics. And of course, this is part of the specification for the OCRA level. So it's a great opportunity to revise business ethics as well. Um, globalization and universality is the first thing I thought in terms of our categorical imperatives. your principle of action be made a law for the whole world. So in terms of that process of globalization, Kantian ethics you know, would say, You can't treat people in a third world country any worse than you would treat people in a developed country you know it's not appropriate to be exploiting workers and because of the universality rules but also of course because of the persons of ends rules so don't exploit poverty you know and don't use sweatshops for example to keep your costs down and maximize your profits or so that you can pay your uh, shareholders in a developed country more money you know the rules apply everywhere you know your principle of action be a law for the whole world that universality very interesting in terms of what it means for globalization which is a key key part of that business ethics topic and it's autonomous it's about humans being rational it's very rigid it's very reliable so it's a very clear framework and in terms of regulation in business That's quite a handy thing, you know, in in terms of holding businesses to account, in terms of ensuring all businesses operating in all countries are following the rules. You know, it provides a universal framework for good moral conduct. As I say, very important when you have got businesses operating in a tax haven over here or exploiting third world poverty over here. It is very clear and very consistent. All human beings are ends the universality of morality. There cannot be any exploitation, there cannot be any excuses, there cannot be any exceptions. You have to do the right thing out all the time. This is demanding, you know, and as I say, that can be a very good thing because, you know, in terms of regulation, having a very clear framework, very clear expectations, holding all businesses in all operating environments to the same standards. But some people may argue that means it's too demanding. You know, the nature of business is that you need to be flexible. You need to adjust for different markets, for different environments, different times, you know. We have so many different environments in which businesses are operating in. The secret to success, you know, I'm not saying I'm Richard Branson, but the secret to success may be flexibility. Well, Kant does not permit any flexibility whatsoever, you know, and so you would maybe pay the price for being moral, you know? Maybe that's a good thing, but in business, when the purpose of business, you know, according to capitalism is to make money, if you start making losses, because you're being too rigid in how you're applying your categorical imperatives, you're not going to be a big fan of Kant, you know, unless you went into business so that you could lose all the money you invested. Um, human rights. This is a really, I think, strong application of Kant here. The, the idea that you should treat all people as ends. Very, very, very powerful. In terms of, as I've got there in the blue box, the Human Rights Convention from the UN of 1948, you know, Kant was hundreds of years ahead of his time in saying all people must be treated with this respect, this autonomy, this dignity um, as ends. And so in terms of business, you know, when that capitalist big machine comes, you know, searching for lower costs and higher profits. This could protect workers, especially, as I say, in uh, sweatshops, for example. You know, it's a really important thing in terms of protecting employees from exploitation. That notion of people versus profits, you cannot use people as a means to an end. You cannot use child labour, for example, in sweatshops um, because it will benefit the business and make you more money. You cannot use people as Um, means only as an end in themselves Um, it, it, it may lead to the idea of a duty of care you know if you're believing every individual is an end in themselves you have a duty of care to them um for business this is complicated when you have other interests however you know Kant was living as I say in his moral bubble but actually businesses may have obligations that go beyond um Morality in a lecture theatre, you know, that go beyond those textbook case studies, if you like, that Kant may have had about applying his categorical imperatives. They have got shareholders, they have got CEOs, they have got customers. They've got many different duties, you could say, and they've got an interest in profit. So, you know, what do they do? Do they put their principles before profit? You know, is that what business is about? Is any business in the 21st century going to go, Okay, it means we're going to go into debt? But hey, at least it means Kant would be happy. (laughs) We've got to think about these things. Um, A really interesting case study, the shopkeeper who always charges others fairly because he knows this is good for business. Kant concludes this is not sufficient for the action to be morally good the shopkeeper is acting in their own self interest. So if it didn't benefit them to be fair, they wouldn't be fair. You know, if they could get away with being unfair or it would benefit them to be unfair, they would be. So he's saying, well, they've not got a goodwill. You know, they're acting out of self-interest. They're acting out of inclination. They need to be acting out of duty and a commitment to goodness. Um, So only if he charges people fairly out of duty, that this becomes a good action. Robert Solomon, a 20th century um, thinker, argued similarly. He said, it's not possible to divide business from the rest of life. Too often people's behaviour in their business, there's no relation to how they act outside of work. This should not be the case. Morality matters even in business. So therefore, you know, you have to stick to your moral principles. So it's not a case of, right, you get to work where you've got to make your money, so you forget all your morals. You know, you forget how you should treat people, how you were brought up. You have have to be very strict in applying your moral principles and convictions in every single area of your life, including the boardroom, including the bedroom, everywhere. So that commitment to morality in every single area of our lives, you could link that with Kant and his idea, you know, about all these regulations, about all these duties that he does believe in there are implications um, of canteen ethics for employees so we've spoken about employers not treating their employees as a means to an end the same applies to their employees they shouldn't use the system you know they have a duty to act ethically as well so overclaiming on expenses for example you know if they can get away with saying yeah it cost me this and get an extra 20 quid you know and think oh well it's a multi-million pound company they won't notice They cannot do that either because, of course, if that became a universal principle that everybody can overclaim on expenses, you know, it wouldn't pass as legislation in the kingdom of ends, and so employees have to conduct themselves with 100% moral integrity as well, even though they think they are just one cog in a multi-million pound machine. They can't play the system or use the system. Um, Again, another positive, treating every person as an end, a foundational idea there for rights in the workplace and for, for consumers, excuse me, the autonomy and dignity of staff. It challenges um the idea of excessive monitoring of employees. So the idea, you know, that you are constantly watching who's on a toilet break, who's the most productive, you know, who's not doing the job, you know, to the very best of their ability 24 seven and poor working conditions. So that that relationship between the employer and the employee, especially with these very big companies, which we often say, do they put profit before people? And do they put profit before employee welfare and care for their staff? And then finally, support whistleblowing where there is significant ethical concern. So whistleblowing named on the spec for business ethics. Um, But this conflict of duties, as I said before, is there a duty to the company? So to be quiet for the sake of the company, or is there a duty to wider ethical responsibilities? Um, And so I suppose you'd have to say, well, which is, you know, your categorical imperative, which would be universe universally and beneficial which one treats people as ends not means um other applications then it just uh, making very strange noises now i'm getting very very into it um emotional charity campaigns you know if you are donating to charity on an emotional reason count would say no not not a good thing to do because you're doing it out of inclination rather than duty lying to murderers as we said with the axman example you know would anybody actually do that, you know, forget the consequences and say, well, I have a duty to tell the truth, you know, it's all about the universality, or would you actually think, I don't want my friend to be killed, I am going to tell a little lie here for a greater good, which obviously Kant would not be interested in considering. Sexual relationships are very important application because sex ethics does ask you to consider Kant as well, and I think primarily that would be about, um, using people as a means and how that is not appropriate. You have to treat people as ends. Interestingly, Kant very opposed to homosexuality. He said it lowers people below that of beasts. And I suppose if you look at universality there, the idea that everybody became um, homosexual or practiced homosexuality, you would have negative consequences for the human race in terms of there would be no reproduction would that because no one would be having heterosexual sex um, and also he is very negative of course about emotion um, and passion you know he says man must be disciplined for by nature he is raw and wild so he's quite in tune with sort of Greco-Roman thinkers who said that sex should only be for procreation it should not be about pleasure and desire it must be restricted to procreative purposes um, only. Strengths of Kant then where do we see the best applications where do we see really really positive elements of kantian ethics and his theory that universal law principle it's consistent it's universal obviously and is it therefore uh useful in terms of it has that consistency it can be applied people are very clear you know it works on a global scale so it works in terms of enforcing ethics and morality globally. It recognises the autonomy, dignity and accountability people have, so it means people are accountable for their actions, but it also respects the fact they have autonomy. So it's not that you're being dictated to, it's about your self-determination of your duties, although Kant is saying we will all a priori arrive at the same idea of what a duty is, because we all follow his method for determining a hypothetical and a categorical imperative. Um, it's comprehensive and systematic, you know, it is very clear, you do the right thing because it is right, you know, the idea of universality, people as um, ends not means, for example, it is very clear, it's not about saying in this situation or in this this context you know it's absolute and unchanging it is crystal clear you do your duty you do the right thing because it is right you put the consequences you put your inclinations aside Uh, very objective there is no personal bias there is no cultural bias you know this is very very clear you have moral duties it should be self-evident and everybody should act in a way that their principle of action be made a law for the whole world Very objective, very clear. No room for those emotions to go. Oh, well, I quite like him. You know, you don't have room to manoeuvre in that way, to start making exceptions or excuses. It really uh, acknowledges the intrinsic value of humans, you know, the idea that we are all rational, we are all autonomous, and therefore we are all ends, not means. This underpins, if you like, ideas about equality and justice. You know, it forms the foundation for modern understandings of human rights. In contrast, Jeremy Bentham said human rights is uh, nonsense on stilts, um, and utilitarianism can often result in that tyranny of the majority can't it you know um people could be um harmed for example for the sake of the greater good for the greatest number whereas for Kant every single individual is respected every single individual has intrinsic value because they are rational they are autonomous and therefore you've got this very strong idea of human rights it's reliable you know there is no ambiguity you're either following it or you're not it's you know it's a black and white situation uh, clear and fixed guidelines It is very clear about what you need to do. As I say, it is impartial, it's free from personal bias. It is emphasizing that autonomy and responsibility, that self-governance, that accountability, that can be quite empowering. Again, acknowledging the value intrinsic worth of every single individual. It's all about the use of reason. So therefore, you could say these are well-reasoned moral decisions. You know, you are having to consider, you know, that application on a universal scale, that treatment of the individuals involved. It is not about a personal inclination or an emotion. And so it is based on reason a priori so it's going to be very very clear you know it's going to be well reasoned and therefore you would imagine well justified um and so that that really strengthens it it's not dependent on predicting outcomes you know you don't need to get your hedonic calculus out like Bentham does um you, you are acting based on your intention you're acting because of the goodwill is guiding you. And so you don't need to worry about the outcomes. The outcomes really are immaterial. They're not relevant to the discussion of morality. It's all about your a priori um, duties and your goodwill. And you could say it's a secular theory. Obviously, God is in there as one of our free postulates. But in terms of how it's actually practiced, you know, it is practiced in a way that anybody could determine those duties um, as, as long as they are on board with what Kant is saying you know there is no need to believe in Jesus for example and you know his teachings about love with situation ethics or with natural law and that idea um of you know the the different tiers of law it is you know it is pretty secular I would say as a moral theory despite the fact that you do have God involved but for Kant of course God is um a a working assumption, not a demonstrative proof. What about the weaknesses then? I feel like there's more of them, but I do actually quite like Kant. So the weaknesses that we do have here, outcomes do matter, you know, as with the Axman example, you know, you can say all you like, well, you need to tell the truth, because if everybody started lying you know it wouldn't be legislated in the kingdom of events but actually in that situation the outcome does matter because someone's going to end up dead and as human beings we do have the ability to consider consequences so surely that ability you know should inform our moral decision making it should play a role in how we make judgments and how we come to conclusions and decisions that key criticism we've been returning to again and again it's too abstract it's too theoretical you know can morality be this kind of massacre Kant was working in this kind of bubble you know in his routine driven very rigid inflexible little world but actually what does this look like in practice you know is this actually impractical it's too demanding you could say you cannot expect human beings to follow their duty 24 7 now Kant obviously argues man must be disciplined for by nature he is raw and wild but actually in practice human beings have emotions they have inclinations nobody can follow this the whole time you could say well giving it a go is better than not doing it at all but actually is this practical you know is it putting too many demands on our shoulders you could therefore say different contexts require different choices that idea that every action should be universalized is wrong you know aren't there situations where you do have to as the taxi driver um A Joseph Fletcher quote says, "There are times when you have to push your principles aside and do the right thing." A starving mother with starving children, for example, you know, stealing some food from Tesco in that situation is a greater good. Her children are going to die otherwise. It's a multi-million-pound company. Can't say no, absolutely not, because if everybody stole, the world would, you know, collapse. It wouldn't be legislation in the Kingdom of Ends. Is not taking into account that not everybody in the world is starving to death with starving children too cold and impersonal is the next one. That links in very nicely with that example. There's not certain situations where you do need to show compassion or you do need to consider the context and the circumstances under which somebody is existing. You could say it's too reliant on reason to the detriment of other factors such as sympathy and empathy. Where does this exaltation of reason come from? What's the justification for it? Are humans meant to be solely based on reason and rationalism? Or actually, are there other things to consider, such as sympathy, empathy, and emotion? The three postulates are hypothetical, you know, so what actually is the point of them? You know, you can say, oh, well, we just need to assume these things so that the theory works. But are people going to be satisfied with that explanation? If you're saying we just need to assume that you are immortal, we just need to assume that there is a God, so the morality works. But if people don't actually believe those things, why would they believe in this moral theory? You know, what is the justification behind this? What is the explanation? What is the evidence? Is an assumption of that kind, is a hypothetical of that kind appropriate? If Kant is saying that, you know, imperatives can't be hypothetical, why can you have these hypothetical postulates? Um, Conflicting duties, you know. There are more than one duty, so which one do we pick? If we have a conflicting duty, how do we determine? Is there a hierarchy of duties, for example? You know, which ones do we follow? There may be times when we have conflicts. In terms of conflict, do we always all agree on our duties? Could there be a situation where someone thinks that That is a hypothetical imperative, whereas someone else thinks it's actually a categorical imperative. You know, it's based on this assumption we will all reach the same conclusions a priori through our use of reason. But actually, will different people come to different a priori conclusions about duties and the role of emotions? Should emotion play a role? agape love for example should that be in there happiness and utilitarianism the idea that happiness should govern our moral decision making because it's the purpose of human life so is there more to morality than reason the theory is better at saying thy shall not so it's better at saying what you shouldn't do rather than saying what you should do you know there are very few things that you can say every single person on the planet should do this you can say they should not you know for example they should not Murder, or they should not make lying promises, for example. But what about what they should do? So is it limited as a moral theory? It's quite restricted in what it can actually achieve. Is there another moral theory which is more applicable? It's more helpful when making our moral decision making. This is too restricted in practice. As we said, it relies upon belief in God for justice to be ultimately restored. The idea is about the summum bonum. In order for perfect virtue to be rewarded with perfect happiness, you have to believe in immortality and God. If somebody doesn't, why would they buy into this theory? Why would they say, Oh, yes, I will follow my duty because I know I will be receiving the reward in the future? But what if they don't? You know, if they don't believe that, Why would they do what Kant commands? Extreme situations require exceptions. So set aside your principles and do the right thing. That idea from the taxi driver in St. Louis. You know, are there not circumstances where, okay, Kant, you know, you lived a very rigid routine life. You never left your hometown. But what about people in a war zone, for example? What about people who are on the front line of, you know, national catastrophes crises they're living real lives they're homeless you know that they're in poverty they're starving that you know they're confronted with very real moral dilemmas are there not times when you have to set aside your principles and do the right thing is he in a position to say no based on the fact he never experienced anything but it's 5am wake up and it's 4pm stroll around the town he was born in um assumption about our capacity to reason this is really interesting one, you know, that that assumption that man is disciplined, man must be disciplined, sorry, so by nature he is raw and wild. But at the same time, you know, he, he should be autonomous because he's got reason, you know, actually, you know, a theological link here. The fall, are we not corrupt? You know, do we not need help? The idea we can self-determine autonomously our duties and goodness may actually be flawed. So do we all have that same capacity to reach the same conclusions? And I've just put there at the end, can you consider any links to other moral theories or could you apply it, for example, to sex ethics and business ethics? And that leads us very nicely to our key questions here, um, which are, does Kantian ethics provide a helpful method of moral decision-making. Can ethical judgments be based on the extent to which duty is best served? And is Kantian ethics so reliant on reason it unduly rejects the importance of other factors, such as sympathy, empathy, and love? They are the questions I shall leave you to think about and reflect upon. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you found this session informative. I hope it might have entertained you as well with a little bit of attempt attempt at highlighting, my love. I'll get there by the next video. Thank you for watching. Have a great day. Bye-bye.